Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Brian J. Cramp is our guest today. He's written a book called This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick. And it's a nice-sized book. It is perhaps, I think it's like 380 pages, and it is perhaps the best-researched rock book I've ever come across, and partly because it is about a very small sliver of time about a very famous band, but about this time before they were famous. So it really goes from their teenage years playing music, all these different bands they're in, the rock scene, how they finally coalesce together, how the sound coalesces and the scene and the people and the style, everything comes together that makes the cheap trick that we know now. So this is stuff that there really was no information about. So uh, because he had to find it out himself firsthand, it's really quite interesting and quite new and uh, just terrific for folks who are interested in the Midwest rock scene or just how the 70s music worked and clubs and uh, record companies recording, all that stuff. Super interesting. So it, it ends right as Budokan Khan is coming out and they are just about to break into huge fame. So, super interesting book, Brian J. Cramp and me. Hope you enjoy it. Talk soon. Good morning to Brian Cramp. I think you're on the phone. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. I love the book. This band has no past. How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick. One of the things I loved about this book is that it makes this book really striking is because it's not about the part of the band where they're, they were famous and their history is well documented. This is, I assume, mostly information that you had to research yourself and and figure it out. So the first question is, why did you want to write this book and tell this story? Well, the short answer is Cheap Trick are my favorite band of all time. And, you know, I've been an obsessed music fan basically my whole life. And I, I love books like this. Uh, you know, I'm a big reader, too, and I'll read almost any book about any band. And I studied uh, journalism and creative writing in college, and I've always been a writer, too. So at some point, for some reason, I just decided to start working on a book about Cheap Trick, not really knowing if it would go anywhere. You know, in the age now of Facebook and everything, it's so much easier to track people down than it would have been, you know, a couple decades ago. So when I realized I could find people and then you find one person and that might lead you to the next person, you know, as it snowballed, it just kept kind of, I kept kind of expanding the scope of the book. But, you know, I originally kind of started out imagining I was developing a pitch for a 33 and a third book about the first Cheap Trick album. But the real, you know, impetus for it becoming something more was when I actually started developing a relationship with Ken Adamani, who was the manager of the band, you know, from the very beginning. Once I realized that Ken Adamani was interested in working with me, I realized I really had something important as a big cheap trick fan ken adamani was just kind of this mythical figure and when i realized that he liked what i was doing and he was willing to help it i really it really seemed like i i struck gold at that point so 
that's when I really started taking it a lot more seriously. Because in my opinion, there's really not much more of an important person if you're writing a book about Cheap Trick. Because Ken Adamany has saved everything over the years. So usually if I'm talking about something, you know, that Ken Adamany told me about or, or did, he has the documents to back it up. I've seen all the old letters, telegrams, ledgers, receipts, you know, just a receipt that he still has or just handwritten notes, you know. Rick Nielsen called his secretary on the phone and they jotted down a note and he still has it. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, and that's invaluable for something like this because you have a date. You know, so many, he has the dates in the book. There's a carbon copy of the original letter that he wrote to Jack Douglas that he still has, which is what got the ball rolling for the band to get their record deal was that letter that he sent to Jack Douglas at the Copley Plaza Hotel when Jack Douglas was busy producing Aerosmith Rocks. And he gets these tapes in the mail of this band that he probably never heard of. And he's impressed. And then he come, you know, flies to Waukesha, Wisconsin, where I grew up. Incidentally, he flies there to see the band at a bowling alley. And that sounds like a, you know, that sounds like a fantastical story. Oh, they, they were discovered in a bowling alley, but it's 100% true. And the fact that he has the letter with the date, because that's what was really important to me at eventually was dates. You know, because the book is kind of a chronological tale, especially once... The cheap trick ball gets rolling. It's almost day to day in certain parts. And so dates were, were vitally important to me to, you know, have everything in context and, you know, have the have the story flow. So, yeah, that, you know, that's that's a long way to <laughs> that's a long answer to your question. But, yeah, Ken Adamani was a huge that was a jackpot to get him involved. It's interesting to hear you talk about how it came into your head, because when you're reading it as a reader, very obvious that a lot of it just sprang from your particular curiosity that you needed to satisfy. And clearly, a book like this is a labor of love. It's not something that somebody who didn't love the band and, and have that internal curiosity would, I don't think, could, would be able to do. The, the guys in the band all born, allegedly, between 1948 and 53, and by 67, they're all in bands, right? They're ages 14 to 19, They've all got the fever. They're all in, you know, and and from then on, they're all in bands. They're, and and as you just said, there, there's just details about all these different kind of bands these these guys are in, uh, sometimes trading members overlapping and ever. Uh, but one of the great things about this book is it's an almost 400-page book, and the four members of the band that we know as Cheap Trick don't play together until just about exactly halfway through the book. It's amazing. So how long did it take to put together with all that work, and how many people did you talk to? Yeah, I talked to over 80 people, you know, that some of those interviews might not have even yielded a quote that I used in the book, but it might have yielded a fact or, a, or, or linked me to somebody else. You know, you just have to talk to everyone you can find, and you never know who's going to have the story that you're looking for, or a story that you don't even know to be looking for. You know, that's that's what you realize when you're interviewing people for something like this is a lot of the time you don't even know the right question to ask and you just have to hope it comes up during the conversation. You know, there's an amazing story in the book about Patti Smith that Bunny Carlos ended up telling me and I had no idea there was any story 
<laughs> relating to Patti Smith. And it just happened to come up when I was asking him about the record plant. But yeah, you know, the the guys were in a lot of different bands before Cheap Trick, played with a lot of different guys. And I talked to at least one person from any band that any of the members of Cheap Trick were in before Cheap Trick. And yeah, like you said, Bunny Carlos played in a pickup cover band with Robin Zander before Cheap Trick. Robin Zander played in a band with Craig Myers and Chip Greenman, who were in the band Fuse with Tom Peterson and Rick Nielsen. And yeah, the way that Tom Peterson and Rick Nielsen end up teaming up is really interesting because Tom Peterson has this band called Toast and Jam, and uh, Rick Nielsen is really impressed by them. Craig Myers and Chip Greenman are also members of that band, and they were all great musicians, and they were really in sync. And so when Rick Nielsen saw that band, he was like, that's the band I need because he wanted to start writing original songs. You know, when they all started out, they were all just playing covers for the most part. And uh, yeah, like you said, by by 1967, I have the statistic in the book that two thirds of all American males under the age of 23 were in a rock band because it was <laughs> basically a huge fad. You know, the Beatles and the British Invasion created this kind of tsunami that didn't really last that long. You know, that's the thing is most of those guys that were in bands in 1967, they didn't try to make it their their lifelong career. So the guys at Cheap Trick are the guys that really that decided that this is what they were going to do with their lives. It, you know, it wasn't a hobby. Yeah, clearly these guys, they were lifers. Yeah, there's a lot of incestuous stuff in these bands, and you, you make that real clear. Uh, it's interesting that in 1965, uh, in the book, it says that Rick, Tom, and Bunny were all at the same Yardbird show just as fans. These guys were always into music. So there was this, the, the book really lays out this whole scene uh, in Rockford and the surrounding areas, like all these different bands, uh, and eventually the the lineup comes together and it's clearly uh, magic. So tell me, I mean, without that whole time where they got to play sometimes whatever, five sets a night and play covers and learn songs, there you know, there wouldn't be the cheap trick that we know. But it seems to me that the way you describe it, that scene there was truly remarkable. Just the amount of clubs, uh, the amount of music fans and these guys could make a decent amount of money and play music it seems like every night of the week if they wanted to yeah and they basically did you know they played almost every monday tuesday wednesday they were playing somewhere and they had this amazing circuit of bars and clubs mainly in illinois and wisconsin they would play in michigan minnesota iowa but really the bulk of their shows you know, leading up to 75, 76 are all in Wisconsin and Illinois. And Ken Adamani was a booking agent and a promoter starting even in the late 50s when he had his own band. So by the time he's working with Cheap Trick in the early mid 70s, he had relationships with all of these clubs and bars. He was booking hundreds. At one point, he had over 100 bands on his roster that he would book shows for. So there was this amazing network and yeah they could just basically make a decent living just playing every night and yeah they had started doing it as teenagers and playing in different cover bands essentially but by the time they're performing original material as cheap trick they're a known entity and they have this amazing circuit 
you know, that's one thing that everybody says from Jack Douglas to Tom Werman to basically any producer or anybody like that that worked with Cheap Trick, they all say it was the easiest band to produce. They just come in, they hammer it out. They're absolute pros. Mm. They're, they're amazing musicians, and they've been doing it for so long. It's just second nature. And they were just this local band in the Midwest, and, you know, they had this amazing collection of original songs that certain people, when they saw them in a club, it blew their minds. <laughs> you know, the average person, maybe it was just background noise, but I talked to these people like like Joel Danzig, who, you know, was a co-founder of Hamer Guitars, and he's the guy who built a lot of those wacky guitars for Rick Nielsen and built the 12-string bass. And he talks about what how amazing it was to see Chip, Cheap Trick in a club, and they just stood apart from any other band. I mean, there was obviously something special, but also weird and interesting. And so there was just obviously something special about this band that's just playing at this random bar in Wisconsin, but they're playing those songs and it's those guys, you know, it was, they were, they were very unique and, you know, obviously the best of the best, it, you know, in the Midwest at the time. It's interesting that in some ways their, I think their live thing, especially in the early days was in the first few albums, they had a hard time figuring out how to present themselves on record, which is part of the Cheap Trick story, I think. One of the things that in the book, uh, 1968, Rick says he was eating acid like candy, and the music was kind of very, kind of proggy in, in a way. And it seems like when when they became Cheap Trick and when they broke through was when they sort of dropped the proggy thing. And I think in the book, somebody says, like, we decided to make music folks could dance to in the bars. And then, and I guess Rick started writing slightly more poppy song seems like kind of the for me the most important turning point in the band was was that evolution what do you think caused that just looking out in the audiences or just being sick of the prog thing or or what yeah that's one of the most fascinating things that's the one thing that i would ask rick nielsen about if i had the opportunity is song is songwriting and there was an obvious shift you know sick man of europe was a band that they had in Philadelphia, and it was essentially Cheap Trick with a different singer. It was Rick, Tom, and Bunny, and they had Stooky from the Naz singing. And that's the band that Bunny talks about, that they were clearing the dance floors because they had these proggy elements and these long songs. You know, they had... There there was two Sick Man of Europe songs that were called In the Middle of the Night Part 1 and In the Middle of the Night Part 2. <laughs> and I've never heard those songs. Bunny Carlos has just told me about it. But that's the kind of thing they had, and uh, they were not popular. They they got bad reviews, and they weren't really going anywhere. And it's you know they they were out in Philadelphia for like two and a half years. That's where Stooky, you know, that's where Naz were from, and Rick Nielsen had moved back there with Stooky at at one point, and then they got eventually got Tom and then Bunny to come out and join them, and they were all working at this bar called Artemis. You know, they played shows out there. They were playing in New Jersey and, and stuff, but it wasn't going anywhere. And then Rick's wife got pregnant. They moved back to Rockford, and they almost immediately fired Stooky. And then they were looking for a new singer. But you could tell, especially Rick Nielsen, he wanted this to be a completely new band, even though it was, you know, the same guys. And 
yeah, he started, well, even for the first, you know, year of Cheap Trick, they only had a couple original songs. They were mostly playing covers. The first Cheap Trick shows were all covers. And, you know, there was really only two or three original songs that they performed when Zeno was the singer of the band, the original singer for the first year and a half. Rick obviously started writing different kinds of songs, but different is the operative word. I mean, they were still weird. <laughs> they just weren't long and proggy, but you never get the impression that when Rick Nielsen was writing those songs, the early Cheap Trick songs, you never get the impression that he was trying to write something that was mainstream or commercial. That's definitely not, does not seem to be what he was going for, but he did seem to discover his own style, developed this amazing style that's kind of a mixture of glam rock and punk rock and heavy metal, hard rock. The songs are amazing. And for the time period, for the era, they really were unique. Yeah. You do a great job of sort of putting the what's happening with the band's career in, into the context of what's happening in America or, or in the music scene. Uh, I should remind folks, Brian Cramp is our guest today, and the book is called This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick. Uh, in the book, you describe this time when they're trying to get signed, and like we were talking about earlier, pretty much every A&R person who comes to see them has their mind blown. You know, people can't, there's really nothing like what they were doing, you know, and like you said, it's it's this, it's all this work that's gone behind it, yet they're up there kind of just having fun. Uh, they, they end up uh, getting signed to Epic. When they made the first record, what do you think the band's expectations were? Do you think that they thought they would have a hit? Do you think they were just happy to get to the next rung on the ladder? What were their expectations? Yeah, it's hard to say. Like I said, I it doesn't seem like Rick Nielsen was necessarily angling for a hit, but they really obviously let Jack Douglas, you know, he, Jack Douglas picked which songs they recorded. He picked which songs went on the album. He sequenced the album. It was pretty much left up to producer Jack Douglas. Cause like I said, they had like 50 songs to choose from. And what I love about the first album is that Jack Douglas picked their weirdest, <laughs> most abrasive material for the most part. Yeah, it's true because Sur Surrender, I Want You to Want Me, Come On, Come On, Southern Girls, all these songs already existed when yeah. they made that first record. They even had a version of Dream Police, which, you know, Rick ended up rearranging and rewriting. You know, I actually have Bunny Carlos recorded s trying to sing me the original chorus of Dream Police. <laughs> Uh, it just, you know, he still has it in his head. He still remembers what the song was like. Huh. They did record Surrender and Dream Police for the first album, but they never got past basic tracks. Wow. I would love to hear those as bonus tracks at some point. One of the things the book made me put into context was the first record released in February 77, the second one September 77, the third one April 78, Budokan, October 78, Dream Police, September 79. So two and a half years, the, all of those five albums. I mean, nowadays it takes bands, you know, a year to get the snare drum sound sometimes or whatever. But, you know, it's just an incredible amount of incredible music in such a short time. And their weirdness to me is such a big part of it. And they're sort of part of what I love about those records is that there is a thread that goes through them all that is very cheap trick, yet there's still, you know, the records are all different and there's so much 
going on. I always feel that there's like a little bit of a uh, personality crisis within Cheap Trick. Like they, like I feel like Rick sometimes talks about that they're like a heavy metal band trapped inside a pop band, but I think they're like a super pop band trapped inside a, a loud pop band, uh, you know? Yeah, Rick Nielsen has a real knack for melody. So, uh, so he's a great songwriter. The songs have great hooks, you know, very... A lot of the songs are very catchy. And then you have Robin Zander delivering those yeah. melodies and those hooks. But I think the first album in that way is an amazing document of the club band. So I think it's it's wonderful we have that. You know, Jack Douglas didn't do a lot of producing <laughs> necessarily on that first album. It's very raw and chaotic. And, it, you know, people who saw the band back then say even the first album isn't as wild as they were in the clubs. I think Jack Douglas obviously appreciated what you're talking about, the 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 craziness and the weirdness of Cheap Trick. He obviously really appreciated the eccentricities of Rick Nielsen's songwriting that are so you've got this clash of melody and weirdness and obviously that's really what was special about the band. And then Tom Werman, he wanted to you know, he even says he a part of his mission was to try to get them on the radio, which you don't get the impression from the first album that Jack Douglas no. was trying to get them on the radio. He even talks about, oh, maybe they'll get on college radio, you know, they were more of like an alternative band. Like, like I've said, I, that first album could have come out on Sub Pop in the 90s, practically. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, and Tom Werman had a very different approach. And, you know, even the band members have had some misgivings about maybe... I, I think In Color is my second favorite Cheap Trick album after the first one, so I really love it. And, you know, most of those songs they had, like you said, for the first album. Oh, yeah, there's such a contrast between those two records. I, I agree. I also love In Color. Yeah. Let me ask you, you go through um, a lot, you excerpt a lot of interviews, you talk to band members, and it doesn't seem, I can't remember any time where a band member has regrets about decisions they made in this long, long career, do you think that's just sort of professionalism, they just don't want to look back, or do you think they really just don't see what's behind them or don't have regrets? Well, they might regret some things that happened after the book, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> the Cheap Trick had a rougher time in the 80s. I think it went really well for them in the 70s. You know, they didn't. it took them a while to, to, to hit the big time with Budokan, but all these guys wanted to do was, was you know, play music for a living. And they were doing that for a long time before they were Cheap Trick. And, you know, they were... Like I said, I think they were making a pretty decent living. They even talk about when they got the record deal and signed with a, a booking aid, a big talent agency, they were they were losing money. They were making way less money. Yeah. It was they were making a lot less money opening for the Kinks in Kansas than they were just playing the clubs in Illinois and Wisconsin. So yeah, they they kinda had to build and you know, until they, you know, eventually hit the big time with Budokan. But I don't, yeah, I don't really know what they even would regret about the 70s. It seems like it must have been a lot of fun. And, you know, they were very successful on different levels, but they were they were a popular, successful band, even when they were just a band in the Midwest. I can't quite put my finger on it, but to me, this is such a Midwestern story. You just talk about this circuit that they play that they 
kind of honed their their sound, their look, their personalities. They're definitely like not a New York band. They're not an L.A. band. What do you think it is that makes Cheatrick such a Midwestern story? Well, everybody talks about their their work ethic and also, you know, everyone I talk to, like uh, someone like Jay Messina, who was Jack Douglas's engineer, engineered the first album. Sam Ginsberg was his assistant engineer. These kind of guys, one of the first things they would say is what nice people the guys from Cheap Trick were. They were just really nice guys, very personable, very friendly, very funny. So, yeah, they had that kind of down-to-earth, friendly, but also funny kind of Midwest attitude and personality, which was obviously seemed refreshing to somebody like Jay Messina, who lived in New York and had been working in the record industry for a long time. And, uh, and yeah, the work ethic. I mean, the, the just playing, just keeping at it. And also, you know, devoting yourself to something like this without really having a plan B when you're just a Midwest club band. When you write a book like this, there are a lot, you know, this is a band that's a lot of people's favorite band. There is a real passion for this band. Do fans reach out to you? I mean, I, the book sort of come out very recently, but have has folks reached out to you to say great job or you you totally, you know, didn't do my favorite thing or has there been a reaction from uh, their strongest fans? Yeah, for the most part, there's been a great response. You know, that is a really nerve wracking aspect of putting something like this out there. I knew I always knew that the the main criticism I was going to get, which was a valid criticism, was that I wasn't able to actually talk to Rick Nielsen, Tom Peterson, or Robin Zander. I tried, believe me, I tried. But, you know, I tried to make up for that by I have hundreds of quotes from those guys from hundreds of sources. Yeah. I mean, that might be a slight exaggeration. I haven't counted, but their voices are definitely represented and I don't really I'm not really sure why it matters so much whether they said it to me or somebody else. <laughs> well, it is one of the most thoroughly researched books I've ever read. So I don't think anyone can call you out on like on not going, you know, deep enough or not doing your homework. Uh, when you were writing the book, was there what is the thing that kind of blew your mind the most that you did not know previous to to digging in and doing the research? It it's it's not really major things. It's more there's just a really fun discoveries that I made, you know, where, where things would come together. I mean, when, uh, you know, th there's an amazing part where jo I was talking to Joel Danzig and who was, you know, co-founder of Hamer guitars. And when Hamer guitars were launching, they were going to put an advertisement in guitar player magazine. This is 1975. And they use Rick Nielsen as their model for the ad. And Rick Nielsen comes to the photo shoot and he's wearing a, ch a cheap trick shirt, which were pretty new at the time. I mean, the logo was pretty new. So he's got one of those famous black cheap trick shirts with the white logo. And then he's wearing white pants and a white jacket over it. So he's all black and white. And the ad was going to be printed in black and white too. And Joel Danzig is looking at this setup and he's like, hey, I got this checkerboard guitar strap over on my guitar that's over here in the other room or whatever. So he goes and gets his checkerboard guitar strap and he gives it to Rick for the photo shoot because he thought it would look cool because Rick is wearing all black and white. And then, you know, we all know what happens with the checkerboard with Cheap Trick after that. So 
you know, when Joel is talking about that, I'm listening and I'm realizing, wow, this is like a huge moment in Cheap Trick history. <laughs> it's the checkerboard pattern entering the picture. Amazing, amazing moment in Cheap Trick history, right? It became their like one of their signature things. Uh, you know, I loved the book. I thought it was great. And I think you did a great job sort of telling the story of the band, telling the story of just of bands in general. How how do how did bands back then uh, evolve and get signed and get promoted and then kind of uh, in the end they kind of stumble into uh, top ten hits with this thing on from their live album uh, live at Budokan, which really wasn't even supposed to come out. And that's where the the book sort of ends, just as they're on the precipice of becoming this you know giant band uh, for a little while. Uh, again, the book is called "This Band Has No Past: How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick." I I give it a a two thumbs up. I highly recommend it. Brian, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us, and I guess we should hear something from In Color now. Awesome.
all, take your feet off the table and help me straighten up. Nancy will be home any minute, and she's bringing some friends with her. For her friends, I don't have to clean up. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. These are the guys I told you about. Mom, Dad, oh. meet Cheap Trick. Cheap Hello. Trick. Yeah, Robin is the lead singer, isn't he? Adorable. Yeah, adorable. And Tom Peterson plays the bass guitar and creates auras. And Rick was a cartoon character before he joined the group. Oh. And this is Venezuela. He was named after a country in South America, I think. Venezuela. They played in bars and bowling alleys and even warehouses, and now they've got an album out. Why don't you play one of the songs from your album for my parents, guys? Send her to college, you said. She'll meet some nice boys, you said. Cheap trick. Only rock and roll could bring them together. Only Epic Records could record their first album. Cheap trick. Whenever I'm in... Whenever I'm in Detroit, I listen to... <laughs> whenever I'm in... Let's start this thing over. Whenever I'm in Lansing, I listen to ILS Radio 101. Don't get technical, dear. I, at least I listen to your damn station. This is Rick from Cheap Trick. Hi, this is Rick from Cheap Trick. Whenever I'm in Lansing, I listen to 101 FM ILS. Hey, baby. That stinks. Hi, this is Rick from Cheap Trick. Whenever I'm in Lansing, I don't listen to the damn radio, but I do like ILS FM 101. Hello, this is Tom Peterson from Cheap Trick, and this is 101 FM Lansing. Ah, there you ask. <laughs> right in the, okay. right in the end of it. I'm sorry. Go, go. I, I had that all right. Start over. Hello, this is Tom Peterson from Cheap Trick, and this is 101 FM Lansing, Michigan. That's great. Is that good? Hey, this is Robin Zina from. No, <laughs> I don't know. Hey, baby. Oh no. Hi, this is Robin Zana from Cheap Trick, and you're listening to 101 FM, Lansing, Michigan.